This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Thank you very much. Thank you to Andrew and thank you to everyone, really, for the uh, incredibly warm welcome for me and for my husband, uh, Will, my son, Max, and our friend, Emma Jones. Uh, we're so happy to be in Australia. Uh, it's summer here. Um, <laughs> it is my first time here, uh, although I've met and worked with and learned from many smart and caring Australians over the years. And before launching into my remarks, I too would like to thank several people. The invitation to speak today came from the much-respected Guy Goodwin-Gill, uh, and it is wonderful to come to Sydney to see him and Caldor Center Director Jane McAdam on their home turf. Of course, without the Caldors, there would be no Keldor Center to issue an invitation and uh, celebrate a fifth anniversary. So, happy anniversary, Renata and Andrew. Francis Voon, Kelly Newell, and Lauren Martin helped in myriad ways to ensure that I was able to accept the invitation, get here, and talk to some journalists in advance. Um, thanks also to the Ian Potter Foundation for its support of my visit. Finally, I believe the idea for the theme for this conference came from a discussion with Claire Higgins that we had at Georgetown University. So thank you, Claire. You make a splendid and informative citizen diplomat abroad for Australia. I'm also very pleased to see and be reunited with some of the Australians who were leaders on humanitarian issues in Geneva, like Erica Feller and John Quinn. I do need to offer an apology to Lauren Martin. Uh, she asked for an advanced copy of the speech and I kept working on it and working on it, and I kept assuring her she'd have it soon, and then I would send her these emails raving about my visit to the Sydney Opera House, <laughs> and sharing photos from the top of the Sydney Harbor Bridge, and uh, I shook the sand from Bondi Beach out of my bathing suit and told her I'm still working on the speech, um, but this keynote is my top priority during this visit to Australia. So without further uh, delay, let me commence. Uh, and I'll commence by saying, this is an odd time in the United States. Uh, I realize this is stating the obvious, but for those of us who work on refugee and migration issues, the world as we know it has completely changed. Aiding the world's refugees was a priority in the Obama administration, particularly in response to record-setting levels of displacement around the world. The pro-refugee policies of the Obama administration have come under attack by Donald Trump. First, during his campaign for president, and coming up on two years now during uh, the Trump uh, administration. So I'd like to share with you a summary of what we did and tried to do to help refugees in the Obama administration and then discuss what has happened with President Trump. And with you, I'd like to consider the role Australia and other leading nations play in all of this. As a starting point, let me note that for decades in the United States, we've had bipartisan support for helping refugees. Certainly within the Obama administration and throughout the foreign policy and national security team, there was strong support for doing more to help refugees. Early on, my predecessor, Eric Schwartz, today the head of Refugees International, took steps to upgrade the US refugee resettlement program and put it on a sounder financial footing so it could better weather changes like those spawned by the economic downturn we experienced in 2008 and increases in the cost of housing. In 2011, leaders in the administration responded to the FBI's arrest 
on terrorism charges of two Iraqi refugee plotters in Bowling Green, Kentucky, by temporarily suspending the flow of refugees from Baghdad and undertaking a thorough scrub of the refugee vetting process. White House officials held frequent meetings with law enforcement, intelligence, and national security agencies to ensure that all the pieces in the process fit together and that our partners at the Department of Homeland Security ran the names and biometric data of refugee applicants through all relevant national, through all relevant national security databases before accepting anyone for resettlement. When I took office in early April 2012, my priorities included convincing Congress to maintain robust funding levels for refugee aid and to expand the number of refugees coming to the United States. We put a greater focus on helping refugee women and girls and other vulnerable groups, built bridges with counterparts at USAID to ensure US humanitarian policy was aligned. Uh, USAID is US Agency for National Development and work constructively with leaders heading up UN humanitarian agencies and well-regarded non-governmental organizations. Congress appropriated nearly $7 billion per year for humanitarian assistance. And the bureau I led was responsible for 3.4 billion, or nearly half of that. The rest went to disaster and food aid accounts of the US Agency for National Development. The US, I like to say, provided the backbone of the international humanitarian system. Serving as a top funder of the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, UNICEF, the World Food Program, UNRWA, which is the UN Relief Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, the International Organization for Migration, and the International Committee of the Red Cross. With the exception of the Swiss-run ICRC, an American traditionally ran or was the number two at all of these organizations. In addition to deep involvement in humanitarian policy development and allocation of aid, I undertook a number of efforts related to diplomacy on broader international migration issues. For example, I joined with permanent representative of Mexico to the UN in New York, um, Luis Alfonso Dalba, to discuss migration in New York to a UN audience Attendees were amazed the US and Mexico could appear together amicably to discuss these topics. This joint appearance was in the run-up to the Secretary General's high-level dialogue on migration in October 2013. I led the US delegation to the high-level dialogue and also led interagency US delegations to meetings of the Global Forum for Migration and Development, held in subsequent years in Sweden, Turkey, and Bangladesh. I conspired with then IOM head, famous American diplomat, uh, Bill Swing, and UN leaders who sought to secure US support for adding the International Organization for Migration to the UN family of agencies. With other countries, we developed and promoted voluntary guidelines to help migrants who were caught in countries that erupted in crisis or were crippled by natural disasters. And we were somewhat amazed when these received widespread, report, uh, widespread support. Many of these efforts related to global migration went unnoticed by the US press. Nonetheless, I thought they were important to do, knowing that the president wanted the US to engage through multilateral mechanisms and believing that the United States had a very good story to tell about how we ourselves treated refugees and migrants. Most of my time, however, was devoting to shaping the US humanitarian response 
to too many crises taking place around the world. Syria was chief among these, producing millions of refugees and internally displaced persons and savage attacks against innocent civilians in Syrian cities. Administration foreign policy leaders and Middle East experts devoted thousands of hours in pursuit of peace, but were defeated time and time again. Stymied on the diplomatic front, more pressure was placed on humanitarian efforts to succeed. At times, humanitarian efforts were the only topic on which the US had anything positive to say. ISIS evolved and rampaged and sent Syrians and Iraqis fleeing for their lives. During this time, South Sudan fell into civil war, and once again, people there ran to neighboring countries. I traveled to northern Rakhine State, Myanmar, and to Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh, and wrestled with concerns for the Rohingya. They uh, then numbered about 130,000 people, and of course, the number now is much, much greater. Uh, closer to a million have fled uh, Myanmar. The situation in Somalia that sent refugees fleeing to Kenya and across to Yemen was then complicated by a brutal war in Yemen that continues to this day. I also tried to bring attention to neglected crises. Traveling to a remote region of Burkina Faso to meet refugees from Mali with then High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres. And later traveling with the EU Commissioner for Humanitarian Affairs, Christos Tilianides of Cyprus, to countries in Africa where Nigerians fleeing Boko Haram were sheltered. And I looked for those rare opportunities to celebrate victories. From prospects to peace in Colombia, to much smaller successes in building permanent homes for refugees displaced years before in the Balkans. One of the things that helped me do my job was the fact that there were no serious divisions on humanitarian policy within the administration. Everyone from the President and First Lady, Vice President and Dr. Biden, the National Security Advisors, Secretaries of State Clinton and Kerry, uh, their deputies and other senior administration officials, everyone cared and wanted the administration to succeed in doing more. So asking cabinet officers to raise humanitarian issues on their travels and in their high-level meetings was not hard. This too is what we meant by the term humanitarian diplomacy that humanitarian concerns were folded into messages to be delivered to foreign counterparts by American diplomats up to and including the president. In the summer of 2015, the massive number of refugees and migrants seen traveling by leaky rafts across the Mediterranean and by foot through Europe en route to Austria, Germany, and Sweden got high-level White House and public attention. There are two dates from 2015 burned into my memory. Uh, on September 3rd, the photo of the little toddler, Alan Kurdi's body, washed up on the beach in Turkey, went viral. We were promptly inundated with calls from those demanding that the Obama administration do more to help refugees. And our friends on the political left insisted we move faster to bring more Syrian refugees to America. At the same time, um, we heard from many conservatives who cautioned us against bringing more Muslim refugees to the United States out of fear that these refugees would import Sharia law and terrorism into the United States. These concerns exploded after the Paris attacks of Friday evening, November 13th. 
The second date I remember well. Suddenly, every member of Congress wanted to know if terrorist refugees were headed to the United States. Even those who supported the refugee program demanded guarantees that the resettlement program could keep out bad guys. And I said we were doing everything humanly possible to screen out liars, criminals, and would-be terrorists. In response to all of these events, record levels of refugees, waves of migrants reaching Europe, drownings in the Mediterranean, and exaggerated fears of terrorists disguised as refugees, the UN decided to hold a major meeting in New York on refugees and migrants. This took place on September 19th, 2016. A second international meeting was held on September 20th, the day after the first. It was spearheaded by President Obama and aimed to increase support for refugees. The UN organized meeting produced the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migrants. The New York Declaration in turn launched two processes to develop a global compact or voluntary agreement on refugees and a second global compact on migrants. Now, you have just heard Jay McAdam give a brilliant description of uh, the state of play with these, and I know that um, these were the subjects of last year's Calder Center Conference, um, and I um, look forward to the panel that will discuss these global compacts later today. Um, the time uh, to focus on them is right now. President Obama's Leaders' Summit on September 19th was modeled on a meeting a year before to bo boost support for UN peacekeeping. At that earlier meeting, governments were invited to attend if they committed to contribute more money, troops, and or equipment for peacekeeping. For the Leaders' Summit on Refugees, countries that wanted to attend had to earn an invitation by making commitments in advance. Wealthy countries were asked to provide more to, in humanitarian assistance and to accept more refugees for resettlement. Countries that hosted refugees were also asked to do more by permitting refugees to work legally and allowing refugee children to go to school. The diplomatic outreach in advance of this summit was tricky. White House officials, cabinet officers divvied up the list of foreign leaders to contact and encouraged to participate. Several countries very swiftly stepped forward to co-sponsor the event, and the number of Western European co-sponsors had to be limited. While finding uh, refugee hosting countries willing to co-sponsor was a challenge. The list of co-sponsors ended up being the UN Secretary General, Canada, Ethiopia, Germany, Jordan, Mexico, and Sweden. Staff at the National Security Council, Ambassador Powers Office in New York, and the State Department's uh, Bureau for International Organizations, our sister bureau, played major roles in putting the summit together. My staff was asked to focus particularly on coming up with ways that refugee hosting countries could be asked to do more and to review the political situation and economic and humanitarian context for each of these countries. This was a particularly delicate matter, as many of these countries had hosted large refugee populations for decades with limited resources, little recognition, and minimal thanks from rich countries. I encouraged some of the poorest countries to make new commitments and earn an invitation. Some were shocked to discover that invitations were not automatic and called the system pay to play, or what one outraged diplomat called the most undiplomatic request he'd ever heard. I was so 
proud to have delivered the most undiplomatic request. <laughs> um, I also frankly acknowledge that they're doing more should be contingent on getting help from the United States or, and other major donor countries. And we all agreed that increased aid flows for education and skills building should benefit not just the refugees, but also local populations. Australia pledged an increase in aid, especially in response to the Syria crisis, and to maintain a generous resettlement program. Altogether, some 49 countries attended, in addition to UN and World Bank leaders. The World Bank used the opportunity to announce its global crisis response platform, a new financing mechanism for low and middle income countries hosting refugees. UNHCR and IOM announced a joint mechanism to help countries start new or expand refugee resettlement programs. President Obama also addressed a group of business leaders in a smaller side meeting to encourage more aid to refugees from the private sector, something that then and now uh, remains a work in progress. The desire of Europeans to see US leadership on these issues was satisfied. The conference was deemed a success in nearly every aspect, save one. Would there be follow-up? Had Hillary Clinton been elected president, which was then the expectation. I believe her administration would have championed strong diplomatic follow through on the list of commitments. Needless to say, there has been no top level push from the Trump White House. No single country chose to reconvene the participants for a second summit. However, UNHCR and the World Bank have used the very detailed list of commitments to engage the various participating countries as a basis for continued dialogue. During that whirlwind week in New York, in the midst of these important September 19th and September 20th meetings, I met up with Rachel Noble, the then Deputy Secretary Policy Group in Australia's Immigration and Border Protection Department. Today, I understand she is Deputy Secretary of the Home Affairs Implementation Team in that same department. We met in a small windowless conference room at the US Mission to the United Nations. There. With a little fanfare and few witnesses, we signed the Australia-US deal on refugees, which had been negotiated over the previous months. I had played a leading role in the negotiations, but I was part of a team of State Department negotiators and resettlement experts under the overall guidance of the Deputy Secretary for Management and Resources, Heather Higginbottom. And we had the full backing of Secretary Kerry. We agreed with Australia not to publicize the deal until after the US election, to avoid it adding fuel to the anti-refugee rhetoric that was already churning. Not, let me make clear, to help Hillary Clinton win, as that was a foregone conclusion in Washington, but to keep this diplomatic arrangement from getting caught up and tarnished by the vitriol and misinformation that was then swirling and that we considered temporary. There is no truth to the rumor that President Obama cooked up the deal after the election in November 2017 to annoy the Trump administration. In fact, the negotiations proceeded at the State Department over months without much direct involvement from the White House, although we certainly stayed in touch with colleagues there at every step and had President Obama's overall support and guidance for increasing the numbers of refugees admitted to the United States. And I will return to the topic of the Australia-US deal in a moment. Candidate Trump made immigration a top issue of his campaign. And in hindsight, I see that it helped him win votes from his core supporters. 
It all started with Donald Trump's announcement that he was running for president in June 2015 at Trump Tower after arriving via escalator. He delivered remarks that included his vow to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it, and accused Mexico of sending north drug smugglers, criminals, and rapists. Not only was this a horrible insult against Mexicans, it was also out of date regarding flows across the southwest border, where in recent years, the number of Mexican workers coming north decreased significantly. Instead, large number of children and families fleeing crime, violence, and insecurity in Central America were arriving. When Donald Trump won the November 2016 election, my hope was that we could meet with his transition team in December and early January and explain to them the importance of these programs. But the Trump team was very slow to come together, and not much happened at the State Department before the inauguration in January. I met only once uh, with two or three people representing the new administration, but these individuals did not stay long at the department and were not involved in briefing the incoming secretary, Rex Tillerson. During the entire two and a half months long transition period, there was no organized handoff to a new set of decision makers. This was unusual for any administration, Democratic or Republican. So I left office on January 19th, 2017, not knowing who would be coming in, and in the 22 months since I left office, no one has replaced me. The position of Assistant Secretary as well as the post of undersecretary to whom I reported and other key jobs and ambassadorships at the State Department remain unfilled. The Office of the Deputy Secretary for Management Resources that Heather Higginbottom filled has been eliminated, at least for the time being. A man named uh, Ronald Mortensen has had his name put forward by the White House to take my old job. He has a background in the logistics of disaster response overseas, but is not an expert on refugees or migrants and has written essays that are anti-immigrant, accusing the dreamers, undocumented youth who came to the US uh, as children, of felonies. His nomination has not been acted on by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, although the leadership of that committee is changing with the new Senate, so perhaps he will one day get a hearing. So a new assistant secretary never arrived, but the Bureau has been receiving guidance directly from the White House, beginning with the surprise of the travel ban. Several days into the new administration, the travel ban was launched as an executive or order and without careful review. It stopped refugee travelers in their tracks with zero warning, which was not only a bad management move, it was cruel to do to people who had waited so long and sold many of their possessions in order to make the trip. Career staff in the department immediately sought a waiver to allow refugees who had commenced their travel to the United States to complete it. Meanwhile, the international arrivals area of major airports were thronged with ordinary Americans protesting the travel ban, condemning it as a ban on Muslim travelers to the United States. Today, 22 months later, the White House has slashed the number of refugees being resettled in the United States <coughs> from nearly 85,000 arrivals in the last full fiscal year of the Obama administration to 22,491 in the fiscal year that just ended, uh, September 30th. The nine faith-based and nonprofit networks uh, that combined resettled refugees in cities and towns across the United States have been forced to close offices. And the State Department announced this past spring that it will trim the list of nine to a smaller number of partners that carry out this work. 
This means fewer cities will be involved in the U.S. refugee admissions programs. The staff and volunteers who help the refugees will lose their jobs and roles. And the highly successful public-private partnership that has been built up over years with years of connections to and relationships with landlords and employers and synagogues and churches and schools will be lost. The Trump administration has done more than drop the number of refugees arriving in the United States. It has stopped a program to unify Central American children with parents that are lawfully present in the United States as refugees or by granting them humanitarian parole. And this program was started under the Obama administration with the aim of reducing the number of children making the dangerous trip north from Central America. It has threatened to end temporary protective status, or TPS, for people who came to the US years ago but have been unable to return home because the crisis or conditions that originally prevented them from returning home have not improved. It has stopped funding UNRWA, uh, the UN Relief Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, which provides education and healthcare and other services to five million Palestinian refugees. It has, predictably, stopped funding the UN Population Fund, UNFPA, which, in addition to other programs, provides re reproductive health services to women in crisis zones, improving survival rates for mothers and babies. It nominated an American to lead the International Organization for Migration, who was found to have sent a series of anti-Muslim tweets. He lost his election, and America lost the leadership of that organization. The Trump administration has proposed deep cuts in the budgets of the State Department and U.S. Agency for National Development, cuts that, fortunately, have been overturned by Congress. It has succeeded in driving some of the most seasoned diplomats into retirement. The staff in my former bureau has twice had to fight off proposals to have the bureau eliminated, which has been a major distraction and sap morale. The Trump administration has walked away from the Global Compact on Migration, and encouraged other countries to do the same. Recently, then Attorney General Sessions issued guidance that judges should no longer grant asylum to survivors of domestic violence or to people fleeing criminal gangs, arguing that these situations do not fit within the legal definition of a refugee. The list of missteps, mistakes, and cruel measures to hurt immigrants and other foreign-born is much longer than what I've outlined here. The most notable move was to cruelly separate children from their parents at the border, and this received national attention and condemnation. To put it succinctly, the U.S. administration has turned its back on the world's refugees at a time of historic levels of displacement. 25 million people are refugees, another 3 million are asylum applicants around the world, more than 40 million are displaced within their own home countries and called internally displaced persons or IDPs. The Obama administration allies and allies had tried to rally the world to do more, but some governments have moved in a different direction entirely. In addition to the about face toward refugees in the White House, we see countries in Eastern Europe led by anti-migrant politicians, uh, populism and nationalism are on the rise throughout Europe. While Germany marshaled its resources to deal with the influx of migrants and refugees in the summer of 2015, the EU, the EU was initially unable to come together to address the situation, was slow to institute proper screening programs, and a workable relocation scheme did not receive support from many EU member states. Instead, walls sprang up and stopped the flow from Greece. Subsequently, Brussels focused on paying off Turkey and other countries of transit 
And European donors are belatedly investing more aid in countries of origin, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Such investment is a very good thing to do for several reasons, but may not stop people from wanting to move to find better opportunities. I am very happy that the Australia-US deal has survived changes at the top in both of our governments. Refugees continue to be screened and moved from these two offshore sites to the United States, albeit in small numbers and very slowly. And regrettably, the Trump administration is allowing only minuscule numbers of Syrians, Iranians, and other Muslims from certain countries to be brought in. Incidentally, I believe the transcript of the Turnbull-Trump phone conversation from January 2017 is the best summary of the US-Australia deal you will find. <laughs> Much of the details of the deal are still classified. Without revealing classified material, I have tried to inform journalists that the initial coverage of the deal was wrong. This is not a one-for-one -one swap of refugees. And there is no magic number or mathematical formula to determine whether and when Australia fulfills its side of the deal. With regard to refugees, in return for taking up to 1,200 refugees from Manus and Nauru, America asked Australia to do more to help refugees from regions beyond South and Southeast Asia, such as Africa and Central America. My own involvement in and support for the deal, and I know uh, former Deputy Secretary Higginbottom would say the same, was prompted by concern for the refugees themselves. Like I say, this is my first trip to this part of the world, and I have visited neither um, Nauru nor Papua New Guinea. But the reports we had read about the conditions for the refugees were very worrying. This fact was reinforced by several of the refugees who have been resettled from Nauru in the United States when we met recently. I also spoke by phone with a refugee resettled from Manus. They described a hellacious environment. Men slept in bunk beds, 40 men to a tent, or several families to a tent, and for three years the tents did not have fans. Meanwhile, the heat was oppressive. The tents also failed to keep out rain. They told me the food was bad, the staff treated them as if they were criminals, and the local people were hostile too, and stole their mobile phones. They had nothing to do but spend day after day after day waiting. They watched movies, Many took the initiative to learn English. They waited six or seven hours for a one-hour turn to use the internet over a sl very slow connection. One day a week, they were allowed to visit a gym for one hour. The heat made it impossible to nap or sleep during the day, and this was a particular burden on families with small children. One said, I watched an Iranian set himself on fire and small children go crazy. One of the refugees from Nauru was smart, friendly, and particularly bitter. He said he lost six years of his life that he would never get back. He had harsh words even for visits from well-intentioned representatives of aid ag agencies and rights groups. They took lots of notes, he said, but they could do nothing to help us leave Nauru. He wondered if they had written everything down only to put these reports in the trash. We were like animals in a zoo, he said. When I asked Imran, the Rohingya refugee who'd spent time on Manus, how he felt when he heard that some might go to America, he told me he did not believe it. He said that he did not trust any of the information provided by officials about options for the refugees, such as resettlement in Cambodia or Central Asia. Still, he has great warmth and affection for the Australian couple, Sandra and Len Fulham from Mount Isa, Mount Isa, 
in Queensland who connected with him and a second detainee via Facebook in 2015 and have since visited the two young men in the United States. <coughs> the refugees who had been on Nauru were very grateful to their English teachers and have remained in touch with them even though one was dismissed after giving, after giving them a gift of chewing gum. To them and to other caring Australians, the Rohingya refugee asked me to deliver a message. Thank you, for we could not have survived without you. The offshore processing model succeeded in keeping refugees arriving by boat from reaching Australia's shores. But it has extracted a heavy human toll from the refugees themselves. Of particular concern to all of us, is the serious harm that has come to children and some of the refugees who were attacked in Manus or were so driven to despair that they committed suicide. But all of them deserve our attention and help. I know that what I am saying is not news here in Australia. So how are they faring in the United States? Sri Lankan parents with three children, one of the children is a baby, born under difficult circumstances in Nauru, were happy that their children would receive an education, have a good future, and experience freedom in the United States. The father, however, also felt stressed as earnings from his job at an Indian restaurant were not sufficient to pay the rent for a two-bedroom apartment and other bills. Several young men from Pakistan are now working in jobs at the bottom of the academic ladder. One was working the graveyard shift at the 7-Eleven convenience store and another, who had earlier studied medicine, was now a landscaper. Still in their early 20s, they are eager to earn high school equivalency degrees and then continue their educations. Another, who earlier in life was an artist, is now a 38-year-old chef cooking Mexican food and remains separated from his wife and child left behind in Pakistan. I, I asked the... Um, the guy working at the 7-Eleven, I said, do people think you're Hispanic? And he says, oh yeah. They come in and they go, hola, hola. And so I say, hola, amigos. <laughs> the refugee from Manus is now working and attending school. They mentioned that one big change is that local people are not nasty to them when they hear they are refugees. They also try to stay in touch with those still on Manus and Nauru. All of the refugees I met from Nauru completely rejected the idea that many of those who've been resettled now want to return. The Rohingya refugee in Chicago, who had been on Manus, thought at most one or two would want to return to be reunited with people they care very much about, or because starting life over in, um, again in America, while the fervent wish of many, is very, very challenging, even to refugees who've been sufficiently resilient to survive displacement, the dangerous journey across countries, and the years of stultifying life on the islands. I hesitate to say more in part because you are the real experts about Australian policies and in part because I do not want to do anything to undermine this deal. Instead, let's look at the global phenomenon we see of a hostility to refugees and asylum seekers. With the notable exception of Canada, as Jane, as Jane mentioned, Many countries seem to be turning their backs on refugees. In the US and our southwest border, the administration has sought to dismiss the asylum claims of migrants who cross the border away from official checkpoints. I am so glad that a federal judge just this past week temporarily blocked the administration from denying asylum to those who enter the United States this way. 
but I remain extremely worried about the global prospects for the right to asylum. In the United States during the Cold War, it was well understood that visiting Russian ballet dancers or Cuban baseball players or Chinese musicians might leave their groups and claim asylum. And providing them this asylum so that they could stay in the land of the free was seen as a logical thing to do and the right thing to do. Of course, there have also been periods in US history where those whose families arrived earlier tried to keep out new arrivals, from the Chinese exclusion laws to the way the St. Louis and its Jewish refugees from Europe were turned away in 1939, to concerns about the trustworthiness of people fleeing communist Eastern Europe and Vietnam in later decades. Today, we not only see that people fleeing for their lives from the Northern Triangle countries of Central America or from war in Syria, do not automatically receive sympathy from a segment of American society. We also see them described as dangerous gang members and criminals and terrorists by President Trump. They are, in fact, the victims of gangs and criminals and terrorists. American leaders in positions of responsibility used to calm unreasonable fears and provide needed perspective to our citizenry. We now have senior government leaders involved in fear-mongering and vilifying some of the most vulnerable people on earth. Let me know if any of this sounds familiar to you here in Australia. I believe our two countries and other countries that were in the past leaders in responding to crises and providing humanitarian leadership must work together to find new ways, creative ways, bold and daring ways to help refugees and other displaced people. We ought to stop the fear-mongering and blame-shifting and responsibility-shirking and instead devote our energies and resources to resolving crises, promoting peace and stability, and collectively doing more to rescue people in jeopardy and to take actions so that people do not need to flee their homes in the first place. Thank you again to the Calder Center for inviting me today, and thank you all for listening. Thank you.